Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, I'm Marianne Russo. Thank you for joining us tonight. This is Children's Mental Health Awareness Week, and I am just thrilled that I have um, two of the doctors from the Child Mind Institute who are joining me this week. And um, Sunday night we spoke about anxiety disorders and obsessive-compulsive disorder and cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy. And for those who don't know what the Child Mind Institute it is, it is one of the most comprehensive um, organizations and practices I have ever seen. Um, it is just outstanding. Their website, childmind.org, is a treasure trove. Uh, any information for parents, um, it's an invaluable support. It really empowers parents with education and support. I suggest everyone take a look. And today, I am thrilled that I have Dr. Steve Kurtz joining me. He is the Senior Director for ADHD and Disruptive Behavior Disorders. He is also the Director of Selective Mutism Program at the Child Mind Institute, and he is one of the leading clinicians in the treatment of children's behavioral problems and disorders, particularly ADHD and school anxiety disorder selective mutism. Um, he's widely respected clin- clinical researcher, child psychologist, and um, he trains parent-child interaction therapy, which is very important. So I am just thrilled. Thank you. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Kurtz. Marianne, thrilled to be here. You know, I'm just hoping, you know, I don't know your take on it, but do you think that we're finally making any progress in stomping out the stigma for these kids? I mean, they've had this label of just being bad kids or having bad parents. You know, do you think we're getting ahead on that battle? I think we're making some inroads. When I have parents who start whispering to me, how will I tell my child and should we call it what it is, should we give it a name, um, it reminds me that we haven't made as much headway as possible. When I work with kids, when we work with families, we're just remarkably transparent. And like discussions about sex with young kids, we keep it at the level that's appropriate for them. So I can talk comfortably with kids about wanting to help them not get in trouble as much, help them wait for their turns. Uh, and then when we go into classes and talk with kids, they queue up. I remember one little British boy saying to me, Dr. Kurtz, is it my turn now? Um, just no. waiting to get help because when they know what we do, uh, they want access to it. But we're, And we're making some headway in terms of numbers of kids who get identified. So when we're asked, uh, is there really more ADHD, I think we're just more successful at getting uh, kids identified who are actually out there suffering from it. I don't think we're actually seeing an increase uh, as uh, per se in, in numbers of kids. Right. You know, I mean, I know even for, for myself, I mean, my husband wasn't diagnosed until my son was diagnosed. That's, that's uh, you know, it's been around for forever. It's It's been here forever. It's just that now, you know, it's it, we understand it better. Um, you know, and but as you were saying before, I mean, so many parents don't seek help for their children. They're embarrassed by the disorder. And I say, would you be embarrassed if they had, you know, diabetes or something else? I mean, it's an illness. And, you know, that fear and that embarrassment causes them from really getting accommodations, which is such a huge mistake, and treatment. Well, not only mistake. does it cause some not to get treatment, but the average wait time from when parents uh, identify that there's a problem to reaching out for help is about two years. And when I think about two years, I think about 730 days of impairment, 730 days where you go to school and don't quite learn as much as you can, where you go to school and you don't quite fit in as well as you can. I think about 730 dinners that are fraught with tension over, please stay at the table, don't get up. 
So that two years is is what I'm after, uh, reducing that time. And it makes such a difference. I mean, I know I, I I'm, I'm very honest about the fact that you know people should learn from my mistakes because, you know, way back when, 20 years ago, we didn't know what this was. And you know, the sitting and the fidgeting, you know, sit still, sit on your hands was the worst thing I could have done. Um, you know, but thank God we got um, you know good advice, and I learned how to treat it. But you know, parents really have to learn how to make these kids comfortable. Um, and I think that maybe we should start by you explaining really what the dysregulation is, um, you know, if we even know what causes it, and then we'll go into some treatments. So we essentially have the same model that we've had for a few decades, which is good because it's standing the test of time. And that's a notion that you can have difficulties with attention. Uh, you could have difficulty uh, staying on task. You could have difficulty organizing your materials. You could have difficulty uh, knowing where you are on a given page. Separate from that, you can have difficulties with being way overactive, like literally jumping out of the seat, not being able to stay in circle time. You can have difficulties with uh, impulsivity, things like uh, blurting out answers and uh, not waiting for your turn. I had a third grade girl who came and proudly showing me her cast. I said, honey, what happened? She said, I won. I said, what do you mean? She said, my friend and I had a contest to see who could jump the farthest off the swing, and I won. In the process, she broke her arm. Right. Now, when we think about these difficulties within attention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity, it turns out that it separates into two categories. One is inattention and the other is this combination of hyperactivity and impulsivity. So any parent, any person who's seen kids, uh, knows that everybody has some amount of them, uh, some amount of inattention or impulsivity. But when we use rating scales, when we actually say rate from zero to three, from nothing to sometimes to uh, often to always, turns out that kids who get identified with ADHD have three times as much of the frequency and intensity of these same behaviors. So what we end up with is a couple of different categories of ADHD. One, which is called predominantly hyperactive and impulsive, and that's the one that comes first in development, followed when kids have to go to school and sit longer and longer at circle time or in reading groups by the inattentive component, so that most kids end up with a combined type diagnosis, but you can have just an inattention diagnosis or just a hyperactive impulsive diagnosis uh, or the combination. But important for your listeners to know that we're talking about threefold differences from what's typical. And, you know, I think it's important for parents to understand that these and teachers to understand that, um, you know, I don't have ADHD, but, you know, I, I, my child did. They're physically uncomfortable when they can't move. Yeah, you know, the I think restlessness. It's, it's, right. It's kind of like a straitjacket. And because they don't have, the younger they are, they don't really have a mechanism to say, um, I should be sitting still. They just start moving and grooving and getting into trouble, squirming, touching the hair of the person next to them, playing. I remember observing a circle time, a great morning meeting in a, in a preschool, and teacher said, boys and girls, I'm going to put down the object in the, in the middle. I want everybody to wait until I tell you to take a turn to touch it. And it was as if that object in the middle, I forget what it was, called out to my patient and said, please touch me now. And so the kid, like a, a strong electromagnet, just jumped into the middle and touched whatever it was. Right. It's, it's so hard for these kids. And then, you know, they wind up... Um, 
you know, standing out, and it causes all types of um, self-esteem issues. So it really is important to understand what they're going through. And, um, you know, do they do they have an, is what is the research telling us on the causes? Because a lot of parents, you know, like to blame themselves for all of their differences their children have. So are there any causes being found and any, you know, possible ways of preventing it? And then we'll go into treatments. Sure. These are a great question. First of all, if you're a... Uh, parents, you can cause a lot of things, uh, but you can't cause ADHD. So we know from genetic studies, from twin studies, uh, we actually can calculate how heritable something is, and it's uh, done on a scale from zero to one or from zero percent to 100 percent. And turns out ADHD is about 77 percent uh, from heritable, from, from genetic factors, which is a really strong, uh, really, really strong load. Very high. Yeah. yeah, and so often in the context of taking a history, when we ask about specific behaviors, rather than asking about conclusions like, do you think your kid has ADHD, but asking, does your child have difficulty with uh, sitting still, does your child have difficulty completing assignments, following directions, in that process, a lot of uh, parents end up self-identifying, uh, so we're able to sort of help them put it in, in perspective. There are other risk factors, things like uh, low birth weight, things like exposure to uh, alcohol, nicotine, or, or drugs uh, in utero during the pregnancy. And no one like psychosocial risk factor puts you at risk for ADHD, but if you have an accumulation of psychosocial stressors like poverty, divorce, joblessness, um, uh, really insufficient living conditions, cumulatively that's yet another risk factor, but the primary risk is uh, is a genetic risk. Right. And, uh, you know, the apples don't fall far from the trees. So, you know, it, it's it's good because oftentimes when the child gets diagnosed, the parent also um, starts receiving treatment or starts to be helped themselves through helping their child. And, um, you know, I want to go through some of the treatment approaches that you use sure. because you really are cutting edge. Um, you know, let's start with um, problems with executive functioning. I mean, that's a huge problem for these kids. They barely come home with their backpack, never mind with the homework in it. Um, so, you know, how do you help these children deal with ex executive functioning to begin with? And then you can go into different treatments that you do. So my universe is divided into those treatments, which I have a lot of evidence for based on research that we've done, based on research that others have done. And then the universe of treatments that I wish had more support behind them, uh, but don't yet. So executive functioning is has been a bit of a tough nut to crack, although there are some recent promising interventions, some interventions like a uh, computer-assisted program called CogMed, which uh, we've added to our menu of services because it finally for us met the, the test of enough evidence that it works. And it's retraining uh, the brain. Um, we've had some good results with kids in the, in the targeted age group, kids usually starting about age eight or so. Um, and executive functioning is is so important throughout the day. So it helps kids be organized. It helps them multitask. Um, but the primary intervention for executive functioning still would be uh, the use of medication. So in general, when we're when we're talking about interventions for ADHD, the largest and longest study ever done. It was in six sites around North America, and I mentioned six sites because you you one would have more confidence in a study 
that's done in multiple centers. So it's not any one person overly invested in their own data mm-hmm. uh, coming out really well. And uh, most of the data was uh, evaluated blind, which means that the person evaluating it didn't know the patient, didn't know which treatment they were getting, just making a pure, really, really pure kind of assessment. And what we learned in that study, which was 570 nine or 576 children, seven to 11 years old, was that those who got the combination of medicine and behavior therapy, and I, and I should really preface this and I'll probably say it again, they got state-of-the-art psychopharmacology, not just quote-unquote meds, and Rolls-Royce behavior therapy, not just uh, garden variety therapy. Those kids who got the combined treatment had significant reductions in uh, symptoms in all areas when they were evaluated 14 months later. The kids who, like many of our patients with ADHD, who had other problems like parent-child stress or anxiety or learning problems or mood problems, those kids seem to really benefit from combined uh, combined treatment of both really, really good psychopharmacology and behavior therapy. And so when you combine them, um, you're actually addressing different kinds of things. So if we look at people who just get psychopharmacology, what we want parents to know is they have to be patient with the doctor who's prescribing because there are, let's say, nine or ten first-line medications. In 2012, I have no way of looking at your child, or I should say the psychopharmacologist, has no way of looking at your child, no blood test for us to do, to say, oh, you have a kid who's going to respond well to medicine number three, but he won't respond well to medicine number five. So it's not that it's trial and error, but it certainly is that it's trial and observation. And basically, clinicians will start low and go slow. They'll give a low dose, first see if there's any adverse side effects, and then start to try and bring up to a therapeutic dose. And the good news is that 70 to 80% of kids who are properly identified will have not only a good response, but a really robust response to uh, psychostimulants for their ADHD. The 20 to 30% who don't have that great response either have a non-response or they actually do have a disappointing and kind of negative response. So what you want is a frank conversation up front, preparing for all the possible outcomes. And the good news is that a kid who doesn't respond to medicine number two has about a 15% chance of what's called a crossover, and that means responding well to medicine three, four, or five. So we have a lot of options in terms of um, the medicine uh, side of things. And frankly, I haven't had a parent when they've been properly educated from the outset who's come to me to complain about a medical colleague, because I'm on the behavioral end of things, who said, uh, all in all, this was a terrible idea, and we're sorry we did it. They might come to us later, uh, a small chance, and say, we're discontinuing because we're not seeing the effects we want or we're seeing negative effects, but at least they felt educated and prepared in the, in the process. And yes, there is appropriate criticism for some docs who don't take enough time uh, to prepare the patients. Right. So if and you, you want know, me- it's... 
it, it's very important because the, the parents, I mean, it, it is frightening um, yeah. to give a young child these medications. And, you know, I think that also, you know, comorbidity plays a role because, you know, it, it's it's very common that you find children that have multiple um, issues. And sometimes one medication can exacerbate the other. I mean, the neurotransmitters are very sensitive. Um, so you do really need to be patient. So, um, you know, we, we talked about the... Um, you know, the medications, and the medications really are key for a lot of these children. Um, and like you said, you're going to have some bad reactions. I mean, you, you're lucky if you find something, you know, the first shot. Um, right. But I wanted to talk about the behavioral treatments because, you Me know, too, like you said, you need, you need both. Yeah. Um, so when you were referring to the um, behavioral therapy, what type of behavioral therapy are you talking about? I spoke with Dr. Um, a bubric last night, and I was saying that my daughter with a severe anxiety disorder and OCD was actually worsened by talk therapy because the talk therapy had her talk about her anxieties and her fears, but it didn't give her any tools to correct them. So is it similar with ADHD and behavioral disorders? It is similar. Uh, I say I used to say this half kiddingly at lectures, and I now say it in all seriousness, that if I did the play therapy I was taught to do, for treating ADHD as a graduate student, if I did that now, I would call it malpractice. So behavior therapy is distinctly different from play therapy. The evidence is quite good that when we teach parents and teachers skills to help prompt, monitor, and reinforce appropriate behavior for children, that they do significantly better. Now, it may be that if a kid, let's say, is a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10 for hyperactivity, and impulsivity, and you tell the child to sit at the table, it may be that it doesn't have a lot of sticking power, so you may need to reapply the direction to come back to the table. And you may need a higher rate of reinforcement, and you may need other kinds of reinforcers or backup kinds of rewards to support that behavior, but that is what good behavior therapy is. It's creating a circumstance where you know what the behavior is you're targeting, and you create this sort of petri dish that allows for that behavior to, to come out and then support it. Because a child who sits at the table for five minutes, I assure you, does not say to themselves, darn, I did a good job sitting at the table. Right, so they right. need, they don't. They need the adult pointing it out. And then they feel really good. I had a boy who went to school after we practiced risk-taking. A simple thing like practicing taking good risks at writing. And he said to his teacher, Dr. Kurtz is going to be proud of me because um, I took good risks today. That took the village of the parent, me, and the teacher all knowing that we were going to target that behavior. And the teacher provided reward reading time for the child for taking good risks. And rewards like reading time, we can feel really good about. We get into a slipperier slope when people get concerned about using like M&Ms as rewards, but that's sort of a caricature of what a reward-based system is. So the heart of behavior therapy, especially for young kids, is teaching the parents and teachers what to do, less so teaching the children what to do. Absolutely. Um, the other thing, yeah. And the other teens, thing I would pain. imagine, too. Do you treat adolescents as well? We do, and the teens and the young adults are actually, um, we teach them to be their own therapists. Exactly. So we teach them, for example, how to set up their own reminder systems, their own reinforcement systems, how to remove distractions that for them would be impairing, but that for you or I would not. For example, if you or I don't have ADHD, it may not be a problem that our Facebook is open behind the Word document that we're working on. 
But for the youngster, young adult or the teen with ADHD, that actually may be a problem. So we teach them how to kind of organize their world. Um, and they seem to do well if the results are positive. So we have to, we have to find ways to help them monitor, uh, monitor their progress. In terms of developmental trajectories, most of the hyperactive impulsive symptoms will wane in the teen, late teen, young adult years. So it's very hard to find an adult who is as, um, you know, who jumps off the seat at meetings, who jumps on the table, who can't sit still. On the other hand, all of the inattention and organizational difficulties, those seem to continue into uh, teen, young adult, and adult years. So we're really on the on the watch for that. And behaviorally, uh, trying to teach young adults uh, how to manage their own their own time better, their own materials better. And there's been some good work uh, done in organizational skills. It's one of the few areas where mm-hmm. behavior therapy alone uh, seems to be uh, showing some really, really good gains as opposed to requiring medicine. Yeah, I, it's so important. And, you know, the thing really is, you know, as we were speaking before, that it's so important that the parent educates themselves but really educates the child to understand what's happening to them because they need to self-advocate. You know, you're not going to be there when they're out in the, you know, in college and in the real world or even at school. So, you know, it's so important that you don't sugarcoat it. Um, you know, and a lot of parents say that, you know, just this, the word no. I mean, a lot, mostly more parents that have children with more severe disruptive behavior, um, disorders like bipolar or whatever. Um, but, you know, I think teaching parents, like I call it the language of positives, where you can spin anything and say it in a positive way instead of a negative way. Um, so how do you teach parents how to deal with the, I hate the word, but defiant behaviors? So especially in young kids, we're so lucky that there are really slam-dunk, evidence-based approaches. One of the ones that we specialize in doing is called parent-child interaction therapy. Uh, Among the many things that I love about this is that the patient is the interaction. When kids come in, we very transparently say to them, you and your folks are coming here so that we can work on making you a better team, helping you guys have more fun together, but also work better together. And it's the interaction that we treat. So the way we do it is teaching parents how to attend really, really quickly to even the most minuscule of positive behaviors and then teaching them after they learn that foundation of being really, really positive, we then teach limit setting and discipline. We teach them how to give effective instructions. Um, I can ask a typical parent, so how many times do you have to tell uh, Mikey to do something? At the beginning, when we meet these folks, They'll typically either laugh or they'll say, you know, five, six, seven times. We then teach them a method where they say it once and then a second time at maximum, and then there's a consequence. Uh, so they learn this in a matter of relatively few number of sessions, typical treatment course, about 14 sessions. And uh, we coach them live. So one of the things we've learned over the years is that when you do parent training, the live coaching seems to be one of the key ingredients. It's like recipes. Um, You might vary in your guacamole recipe, whether you use scallions, how much cilantro, but you you need avocados. We know that's a key ingredient. And likewise, live coaching seems to be one of the really, really key ingredients. Right. And, you know, the 
especially with the younger kids because, you know, they're so young and they, they have such a difficult time, you know, just adjusting to their environment and separation, uh, separating from the parents. Um, how much does anxiety play a role in, um, you know, exacerbating the ADHD behaviors? Well, you mentioned uh, comorbidities before, which is, uh, for folks who don't know, it just means a, a co-occurring condition or having a second diagnosis. turns out about 25 to 34% of kids with ADHD will have um, uh, an anxiety or, or a mood problem. So we deal with this fairly often. It also turns out that you can kind of systematically treat one and then look at what's happening to the other. Um, so we as clinicians have to make a decision with the family, which is the lower hanging fruit, which one do we think we'll get a quicker response to. And exactly. I'm so out. glad you said that. Yeah, because, you know, yeah. a lot of parents think, okay, my child has ADHD. That means that the treatment is going to be a stimulant. But in some cases, the anxiety is far more um, disabling for the child. So sometimes right. when you deal with the anxiety, the, you know, the ADHD gets a lot better, too. Um, well, what do you think the, about fidgets? For, I'm sorry, go ahead. It's also the case that we have to be really careful in diagnosis because an anxious child will appear to be inattentive. An anxious child can appear to be restless. An anxious child can be fidgety. And the cause of that could be anxiety, not ADHD. So when people come to me and I wear this hat, I have this crown that says ADHD expert, what they really want to know is that I don't have tunnel vision and that I'm looking just as carefully for alternate explanations for the behavior. So it's really important for us to do our due diligence and ask, is there a timeline that's consistent with an ADHD history? So when you come in for an evaluation, not only do we ask all of the ADHD questions, we ask all the anxiety questions, all the mood questions, all that's the so OCD important. questions. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. really, really key. It really, it really is. Um, and it can really cut down on, you said, of the trial and error of the medication By the as way, well. it turns out in the, in the, again, this largest and longest study, which listeners can uh, Google multi, uh, MTA study, multimodal treatment of ADHD, turns out that the kids who had ADHD and anxiety actually had reductions in parent and teacher anxiety ratings when the kids got stimulants. So contrary mm -hmm. to sort of popular mm -hmm. misconception that it might make it worse, on average, anxiety got better when kids got uh, appropriate stimulant medication for their ADHD. It's oh, that's really interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's really same, interesting. Same thing okay. with tick research. Uh, same thing with ticks and that people used to think that stimulants made ticks worse. Turns out when you do controlled studies with blind observers, about a third of kids' ticks improve with stimulant really? treatment. And about a third doesn't change. A third do so sh shows some worsening. But the old party line um, when my generation was in school was that you can expect stimulants to make ticks worse. And it uh, turns out it's really just an individual, let's see what happens, and then guide ourselves accordingly. Because, you know, that's one of the biggest complaints, I'm going to be honest with you, um, that I hear from parents is that they put their kids on the stimulants and my kid got Tourette's. And, you know, I'm like, they didn't get Tourette's from the stimulant. It might have brought it out. Um, it might have exacerbated something that was very, very mild. Right. Um, but, you know, I, every, the ex, every, all the experts I speak to, they all say the same thing, that it's a risk-benefit. And, um, you know, that the, if... if even in the event that it does really create a problem with ticks, that you know that could be managed if it's helping the child learn, um, you know, be able to have friends, socialize, 
um, you know, that you really have to weigh all these things out. And that's where informed uh, decision-making and really collaborating with parents is so key. By the way, there's an interesting, really interesting little talked about phenomenon, which is that ADHD comes developmentally before um, ticks and Tourette's. So you have what we call an illusory correlation, sorry for the jargon, but it means that your kid is, is on, it has ADHD, you finally get them some treatment, and then they develop ticks or Tourette's, but developmentally they were at risk to have that develop later anyway, and it makes Absolutely. it look time-wise. I also Absolutely. wanted to, if you'll let me, I want to go back to something you alluded to before that I think is so key, which is teaching kids to advocate for themselves. Right. So we do really fun things like in the summer before kids go to school, we'll have them write a letter to their teacher explaining their strengths and weaknesses and what works best for them. One of my favorites that I remember is, uh, dear teacher, I'm not a good kid, I'm not a bad kid. I just sometimes, and then the kid went on to explain uh, you know, what his proclivities were, and he said, what helps me most is if you just whisper to me what I should be doing instead of the, the naughty or the bad thing that I'm doing. Absolutely. And I loved it. Because Love it. So you know what I really friendly. can't stand? This new trend. And for teachers out there, you know I love you, but I'll tell you this <laughs> one's really under my skin. Um, a lot of these schools now have these boards where they have three circles. And there's yeah. a red circle, a green circle, a yellow circle. And if you're in the red circle, you were bad. And I said to this teacher, and she was saying how well that works. And I said, but you don't understand. When these children go home, one of the first things the mothers say is, who was in the red circle today? And you are stigmatizing that child. And it, yeah. it really, I mean, it's just, you know, it's really about supporting these kids. Giving Did you them go to school in New York City? Um, no, I didn't go in New York City. I live so here I in New York, but I didn't New York go to City, school. And we have this thing called pink slips. Do you know what pink slips are? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so you get sent to detention. One of my favorite <laughs> interventions ever done was in a school where they gave the teachers a pad instead of pink slips. It had three blue slips for every pink slip. So before a teacher could give out another pink slip, they had to give out three blue slips, which was calling positive attention to the opposite behavior in some students. So if I send you out of the room with a pink slip for calling out, before I could give another pink slip, I had to give three blue slips for participating at the right time, uh, which is sort of the equivalent of not calling out. Pretty cool, huh? It's very cool because yeah. any anybody who's dealt with children like this, it is changing your mindset. It is looking at yeah. your child with a different set of eyes and really just reinforcing the positives because they've got enough to deal with. But, um, you know, before we, we go off the air, I just want to say that um, the Speak Up for Kids, which the Child Mind Institute is um, you know, presenting, is incredible. It is being offered all week, and you are speaking at the 92nd Street Y. Right, on Friday. That's true, yes. Um, Taming the Aggression, Ferocious Fours, Beats Terrible Twos. <laughs> I love that. Um, but anybody can go to your website, childmind.org, and there is a list of all the events that you're offering. And uh, I would really love offering. to. Yep. Oh, it's it's fantastic, and um, you know we're going to be prom- we're promoting it on Facebook and on Twitter all week. Um, and I would love to have you back. I know nothing about selective mutism, and um, I know a lot of parents are dealing with this. I would love to have you come back when you're free and uh, do an interview on that as well. I'd be thrilled to. It descended on me. It fell on me from the heavens uh, as a puzzle to be solved, and we're making really really great strides with that. 
That's great because that is, you know, I, I, I am very unfamiliar with it, but the parents that have asked me for a resource for it are just at odds. So, you know, it will be a really important interview. So, Dr. Kurtz, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay. As I end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent here on The Coffee Clutch. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>